This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Last week, we said Ron DeSantis was about to launch his official presidential campaign. It happened, but I don't think anyone expected it to go quite as badly as it did on Wednesday night. Can, are you there? Can you hear us? I think you broke I'm right, here. I know. I think, I think you broke the internet. The plan was for the Florida governor to kick off his campaign in an hour-long interview with Elon Musk on Twitter spaces. But after a multitude of technical issues which crashed the audio livestream several times, his critics were quick to call the presidential hopeful Ron Disaster. Trump had the golden escalator. Ron DeSantis got the world's most embarrassing 404 error. The whole mess contrasted sharply with another presidential campaign launched this week from fellow Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. I'm living proof that America is the land of opportunity and not a land of oppression. Unlike DeSantis, Scott spoke to a packed auditorium. It was in Charleston Southern University. He emphasised his Christian faith and presented an optimistic view of America, quite the contrast with the other Republicans in the field, chief among them Donald Trump. So can the senator convince Republican voters to get behind him? This week, I'm joined by two people exceptionally well-placed to assess Tim Scott's chances. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. So I was listening in, I was waiting for it to start, and they had technical difficulties. And Joseph Bustos reports on politics for The State newspaper in South Carolina. And their Elon Musk and his servers at Twitter, they kept crashing because a lot of people kept logging on, so they had to switch accounts. Uh, it, it, it's a different way of launching a, a campaign. Essentially, I think one person even called it like a live podcast taping is what it ended up being. <laughs> uh, other than the traditional, hey, let's have a rally uh, with walk-on music and everyone cheering with signs waving in a stage and you give a speech. <laughs> I followed the announcement. I, I tried to listen to it. But I- Leah Wright-Rigueur is a political historian who teaches at Johns Hopkins University and the author of The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power. The platform of Twitter as a digital space to make the announcement, I don't think is that surprising. What's surprising, though, is that that's not the kind of announcement, that's not the kind of campaign announcement that we're used to. And it is certainly not the kind of campaign announcement that makes positive waves, I think, amongst the Republican base. It's it's especially unusual given that DeSantis is trying to position himself as an everyday man. And so to say, I'm going to do this launch on Twitter where 
granted 500,000 people tuned in, but to, to do this on Twitter, which is essentially seen as this platform of elites, and we do know that it tends to be a space where, you know, that is not necessarily reflective of the larger American population, seems to be a bit backwards in the, in the face of what Ron DeSantis is trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I found it baffling partly just because people have said that Ron DeSantis' problem is that he's not there as a kind of flesh and blood candidate in person, right. meeting people, working crowds. He's always mediated on screens and so on. And he absolutely played into that by, well, he wasn't even seen. He was just heard via this social media platform. And I also did think it was funny that, uh, you know, a campaign that fails to even get off the launch pad coming so soon after Elon Musk's space rocket uh, you know exploded so soon after launch he just brought a little bit more musk magic to the campaign of ron DeSantis. but let's talk about the newer entrant into this race um tim scott uh joseph you're there in south carolina i don't think anyone in your state or nationally was in any way surprised that tim scott jumped into the race um but he did you were there in person to see him do that much more conventional launch you know often people say that the a campaign is really tied up with biography it is about the story of the candidate so let's dive into that a bit and you tell us about who tim scott is he used this quite arresting line that his family history meant and given where he is now in the senate it was a story of a journey from cotton to congress quite a good line but you just talk us through the background and who tim scott really is yeah, I think one of the key things about his biography is actually it starts with his grandfather. Born in 1921 in Sally, South Carolina, in the Deep South. By the time he was in the third grade, he was forced out of school. His education was over, and he was forced to start picking cotton. But my grandfather lived long enough to watch his grandson pick out a seat in Congress. Scott was raised by a single mom. His parents divorced, so Tim and his older brother, Ben, were, were raised by their mom uh, in, here in South Carolina, and they were poor growing up. We live in the land where it is absolutely possible for a kid raised in poverty, in a single-parent household, in a small apartment, to one day serve in the people's house. Senator Scott talked about how he he nearly failed out of high school his freshman year, but he got it turned around. Eventually, got went to Charleston Southern University, uh, and then started his own insurance business. He was an all-state insurance salesman. He was elected to the state house here in South Carolina, served one term as a state representative, and then he was elected to Congress. And then in 2013, he was appointed to fill the fill a Senate seat, and the appointment was made by Governor Haley then Governor Haley, who's now Tim Scott's opponent. So Tim Scott is one of those stories that if you drop the R or the D behind their name, and if you take away the skin color, it's a good American story that we all should be proud of. Yeah, I heard even actually this week, people who were involved in the Barack Obama presidential campaign, the first one in 2008, saying, you know, they recognize some echoes there of their candidate's story and and even just some of his, you know, manner. But certainly what you've just told us through about being in local state politics, Obama was, very brief period, relatively in Congress before running uh, for the big job uh, of president. There is a sort of echo there and people are going to be drawing 
the, that parallel. I mean, he obviously hasn't been there very long in, in Washington in terms of passing legislation. Uh, but, but has he done anything that has that he's become associated with any kind of signature bill or move or policy? People in South Carolina, they'll recognize his name, but what would they associate it with? So his big accomplishment that he, he usually talks about is opportunity zones. It was this uh, idea that was that he was able to get included in the uh, Trump era tax cuts. Basically, it encourages uh, private investment in low income or impoverished areas. He's always been an, a big advocate for school choice. He doesn't. I think his line is your zip code should not determine where you go to school. So he's a big advocate for school choice, and he has worked on police reform. We wouldn't be here if it were not, as Senator Perdue alluded to, the death of yet another African-American man, George Floyd. His murder is why the country has given us the opportunity to lead. Uh, as the Senate's only black Republican, it's something that's personal to him that he understands. He's been pulled over for driving while black, I think, even as a U.S. senator. It's one of the reasons why I went to Senator McConnell and said, I want to lead this conversation. I'm the person in our conference who has experienced firsthand racial discrimination, racial profiling by law enforcement. And I'm still a fan because I believe that most law enforcement officers are good. So he has tried to push for police reform. Uh, there was efforts with Cory Booker, a senator from New Jersey, to try to get comprehensive police reform, but that uh, fell apart in, I believe, in 2021. Uh, but it's something that he has worked on, and they hope to probably get back to at some point. Leah Wright Rigger, let's just p- pick up that point that uh, Joseph just made there about. This key fact about Tim Scott, namely that he is the only black Republican senator and, in fact, the first black Republican elected to the House of Representatives from his state in over a century. And just what that means, this line that was very arresting in his speech, uh, where he talked about uh, saying that he's less interested in grievance and more interested in greatness. My mom said to me, son... You can be a victim or we can be victors. She chose victorious. It sent a lot of signals at once. One of them was that, you know, he's going to be the sunny candidate, the happy warrior, the sunny optimist in his party, given that grievance has been such a big part of Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. There was that bit of positioning. But I felt he was also saying something perhaps to appeal to conservatives, which was you're used to figures on the left uh, constantly expressing grievance with the way society is. And maybe you're used to hearing that from black politicians. And I'm not going to be doing that. Is that how you heard it? So when when Tim Scott talks about grievance politics, he's using it in a in a dual way. So certainly he's talking about Donald Trump. But certainly it's also an acknowledgement and a nod to Republican and conservative audiences who, just by virtue of the fact that Tim Scott is a Black man, and the assumption there is that Black people are Democrats, is that he's saying, I'm going to be a different kind of politician who happens to be Black. And unlike most people, I don't believe that Tim Scott is a token 
or, you know, just kind of standing there and smiling and, and chucking and jiving, which is, I think, a derogatory w- a way of thinking about him. But it's also a simplistic way of thinking about him. I think we're talking about somebody who is politically savvy enough to know that his audience will not support him if he portrays a vision of America that suggests that racism is systemic or systematic, that it's institutional, that it is ingrained in the very fabric of the United States, which has been his experience. So instead, we get a politician who says, I'm not going to be like Donald Trump, but I'm not going to, you know, who very subtly says, I'm not going to be like your assumption of what those other Black politicians are like. That dual uh, meaning and that sort of tightrope walk is fascinating. And he has said, that he has experienced the pain of discrimination. And we heard from Joseph that very directly how that's played out for him. But he does also say this thing that America is not a racist country. We are not defined by the color of our skin. We are defined by the content of our character. And if anyone tells you anything different, they're a lion. And what I wondered hearing that was whether, in a way, that is essential for a black Republican. The, the, the sort of price of admission, as it were, is to say, look, mainly white party, you're okay. You've got nothing to apologize for. You don't have to feel guilty. I'm going to exempt you from that charge, that he has to say that. Otherwise, he wouldn't get a hearing. Do you think that's right? There is no reward for calling the party out on racism or bigotry. There's none for Black Republicans. In fact, we have documented evidence that, in fact, the Black Republicans who get support from within the party, and this is not just financial support, although that's critical, it's also support in terms of uh, infrastructure, right, network, that kind of thing. The ones who get support are the ones who either support the party uncritically, who echo whatever the party standard bearer is saying, or who find this this space to carve out where they don't alienate their audience while also adhering to certain conservative principles. And the latter is where Tim Scott is. And so that's why you hear him say things like, I have experienced racism on an individual level, but I don't believe America is a racist place. And so it becomes something which alleviates, I think, the conscience of the base where they can say, well, it, it doesn't affect me. That's something he experienced. That's his individual experience. That can be true, but it has nothing to do with me. And I can feel okay uh, in this moment. Yeah. And your book title is very striking about the loneliness of a black Republican. And uh, we were out there. I was out in for the midterm campaigns in Georgia, where Herschel Walker uh, was running for the Senate seat there, black Republican in, a, in, in that seat. Uh, he didn't win it. But encountering black Republicans and talking very much about this sort of tightrope walk that you're uh, setting out for us there. Look, it used to be that there were hardly any black politicians who sought the Republican nomination, and they were usually on the very fringes. People might remember the name of Herman Cain in 2011, Ben Carson in 2016. And yet now something does seem to be changing, uh, where we're seeing black Republicans take on and 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 compete in you know, winnable and important races just last week, and we mentioned it, I think, on the podcast, Daniel Cameron defeated an opponent to win the Republican uh, nomination for governor in the state of Kentucky. 
record numbers last year of black Republican candidates. And we also saw in 2020 some change in voting habits, where there was just a small but noticeable increase in African-American vote for the Republican Party and for Donald Trump. A lot of pollsters were really struck by that, given how Donald Trump had acted as president. Are you seeing a shift in, in is it becoming, a to play off your title, book title, a little less lonely <laughs> for a Republican, uh, a black Republican in today's Republican Party? The irony here is that pollsters in particular would assume that the Republican Party would get zero black support. That's never been the case, even when the Republican Party was at its lowest. And I would say that was 1964 with Barry Goldwater or 2008 when Barack Obama ran for president. What we're seeing now and what we saw in 2020 was a correction of the mean. So essentially, black Republicans are coming home. They are going back to their pre-Obama levels. African-American voters overwhelmingly support the Democratic Party, and they have since at least 1936. But that doesn't mean that they are necessarily happy with the Democratic Party. No, it still doesn't address the underlying condition, which is this idea of loneliness, this feeling of isolation. And I was struck by an image that that came out of the Tim Scott campaign. It, it was a pamphlet. I don't know if it was campaign endorsed. It certainly was being held by somebody in the audience. And it's a figure of Tim Scott, and it looks triumphant. It's a caricature, uh, a cartoon version of him, but it's faceless. And if that doesn't speak to loneliness, right? This idea that you can put kind of a generic black figure with no face and suggest, yes, we support him. You know, and it doesn't seem like that's an image that that Tim Scott would choose for himself. It's certainly not what's on his campaign website. It's not what he's holding up, you know, in these various ads, but it's one that that seems to have been thrust upon him. Joseph, uh, in South Carolina, you know, I'm sure that in his campaigning and that you're going to see, Tim Scott is going to place either as much or perhaps more emphasis, not on his race, but on his faith. I heard the Lord speak to my heart and say, this is not about you. Don't confuse it. You're you're my vessel for this journey, but it's not about you. He talked about God openly, uh, unabashedly in his announcement uh, speech. Very quick to emphasize that. But I know a lot of pundits are thinking, well, the first big contest is Iowa, often a very religious uh, and conservative body of voters there deciding the Republican uh, nomination. That That is maybe his opening is to, and we've mentioned Obama a few times, it's what Obama did in 2008. He unsettled the Clinton a juggernaut by winning in Iowa. Uh, a lot of talk of that for Tim Scott. But, f- you know, he's got his own home state of South Carolina. I'm guessing being a man of faith and having evangelical support really matters in that state. And South Carolina is one of the early voting states on both sides, but re- on the Republican side too. I guess the slogan, I'm, I'm wondering if that's the best way to put it, faith in America seems to be something that they are branding a lot with this campaign. Before he even launched the exploratory committee, he went on a faith in America listening tour. And you look at that and you think about it, it's more, it's faith as in terms of religious, but it's also faith within the country to continue progressing forward. So I do think that might be a, a very key part of his campaign. Uh, I think there was one 
uh, former state party chair who said uh, Tim Scott quotes the Bible so often, uh, he probably quotes it more often than a preacher does. And there are uh, parts of the state which are very religious, uh, that do have that evangelical bent to it. So uh, the religious message or the faith message could be one that could potentially work up there. And maybe he's something he can do more authentically than some of his opponents. I mean, Donald Trump is hardly convincing as a man of God, although, interestingly, evangelicals, there's a base of support there for him. Similarly, I would say about Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, maybe for for religiously-minded voters, uh, Tim Scott will be a very natural magnet to attract that support. But there is this thing, and I've already noticed myself on social media, some rumblings from conservative pundits, uh, those people uh, who are in politics, you know, professionally, are raising the fact that Tim Scott is a bachelor, uh, has never been married, no wife nor or children. And they have raised, suggested that he this is going to be a problem for him. Just tell us in South Carolina, has this come up about Tim Scott before, man in his 50s, traditional, conservative, religious state? Um, has it come up before? And how have people reacted? So he's gotten reelected to the Senate twice here in South Carolina, 2016 and 2022. And in the most recent election, he carried 63% of the vote. So I don't think people pay too much attention to it. Family is important to him. It was once said that he has dinner or lunch with his mother every Sunday. I'm wondering how much that could continue during a presidential campaign. Hmm. But you saw during his campaign rally, he brought up his nephew to introduce him. He brought up his mom on the stage. And then he actually even had his dad and I think his his older brother as well on stage with him at the end uh, with some other people. So family is important and to Tim Scott, and he shows it, and he found a way to include family in his in his kickoff. On a state level, I don't think it matters at all, but on a national level, it's everything. Particularly for a man who's running as an as a faith leader and a family values uh, candidate, and part of that is I think that the base of the Republican Party simply will not put their put their faith. And a man who is unmarried, given how marriage plays such an important role in questions of religion, especially within the evangelical tradition, I would not be surprised if his other competitors bring up the fact that he is unmarried as a reason why you can't trust somebody like this. Now, does that mean that it's that it's impossible? Does it mean that I'm going to be, you know, 100% right? No. We saw Donald Trump is a was was a philanderer. <laughs> He's been married several times. He, you know, appeared in a softcore porn <laughs> movie before being elected president. And, you know, he overwhelmingly got uh the religious and the evangelical vote. So stranger things have happened, but Based on how we see these things play out, particularly amongst conservatives within conservative circles, that is certainly going to be a, a, a detriment to him. We should just talk a bit, Joseph, about the actual mechanics of the campaign. Um, he has uh, so far getting quite, you know, some big endorsements, not yet endorsements, but praise from people who are big in politics, who are thinking maybe this is just the guy who could take on uh, Donald Trump. And that has translated into some serious money, a war chest of, I think, 22 million uh, um, or or more. 
uh, at last count. While Nikki Haley, it said, is struggling to get more, much beyond sort of four million or so. Not sure whether she's going to be able to keep funding her campaign into the autumn. What do we know about who is funding Tim Scott? The twenty-two million that was carried over from Scott's two thousand twenty-two re-election campaign. It was money he saved that he didn't need. Uh, he raised like fifty-three point nine million during that campaign in a race where he won by or won with sixty-three percent of the vote. So he didn't have to spend it. It gives him a head start on all other candidates to have that type of hard cash available to you, and you could buy airtime. He's got an ad buy in Iowa and New Hampshire this week. Right after his campaign uh, kickoff, his campaign told me that he had raised $2 million just in the first day. That shows a lot of excitement, and he has access to money or people uh, who are supporting him or supporting other entities that are going to be supporting his campaign. So that will help get his name out there. And let's just um, talk about the man who is still on all the polls the front runner just before we close this out and that is of course Donald Trump Leah it was striking that uh, Donald Trump greeted warmly uh, welcomed Tim Scott to the race Donald Trump posted on true social wishing him good luck and even saying that he is a big step up from Ron de Sanctimonious <laughs> who is quote totally unelectable <laughs> went on to say good luck Tim now, we don't normally uh, see this kind of magnanimity <laughs> from Donald Trump. I mean, what's your read of why he's so warmly uh, embracing the new entrant into the race? So, first of all, it would look terrible for him to trash the only black man in the Republican Party running for president, right? A serious contender for president. But the last thing, and I think this is really important, is you take all of that and you couple it with one distinct fact. Donald Trump does not see Tim Scott as a threat. He absolutely does not see him as a threat. Is that a mistake on Donald Trump's part? Perhaps. But it's a reflection of how Trump attacks these things. Now, I don't think during the actual debates that Donald Trump will be as gentle as he's being right now. I think, you know, the gloves will come off, particularly if he sees that Tim Scott begins to creep up uh, in the numbers. But right now, he's number four. The people that he's concerned about uh, the person that he's concerned about is Ron DeSantis. That is his biggest competition right now. I think you're pro probably right about that. Uh, we will certainly revisit this. Before we let you go, though, our tradition on this podcast is to ask our guests a what else question. And so we want to talk about a different member of the United States Senate, and that is... Diane Feinstein of California, uh, who is 89 years old, who has been absent from the Senate because of ill health. Uh, she made a recent return to Washington, D.C. and to Capitol Hill. Her staff uh, went to great lengths to keep her out of sight and uh, away from the prying cameras of the press. They didn't fully succeed. And there are some uh, photographs of the senator in a wheelchair as she uh, went to the Senate all this going on, what's your view of, of the politics of this and of, in a way, the rights and wrongs of it? I mean, you know, would it be, is it right that somebody 89 years old is making these huge decisions or is it time really for her to bow out? How do you see it? And how do people in your state of South Carolina, Joseph, who have some experience of very aged senators, how, how are they seeing it? 
I, I, yeah, I mean, South Carolina has a tradition of electing the same people over and over and over again. That's how they have this outsized influence in this uh, in Congress. Jim Clyburn, the lone Democratic member of the South Carolina congressional delegation, is African American. He rose up to leadership. So age doesn't matter uh, to people here in South Carolina. It's more about the ability to do the job. And Leah, uh, to people from abroad it can, and from outside, it can look pretty strange, uh, the whole fate of the appointments that can be made to the United States judiciary in the hands of somebody uh, 89 years old and whether or not she is well enough to cast that vote. It's uh, despicable, actually, the circumstances that have produced this. She can't resign. Based on recent history, Republicans will not allow Democrats to fill that seat. And what happens, it holds everything up in the process. It's obstructionism uh, that has become politically commonplace. Uh, you know, in a perfect world where everything was functioning as intended, as, you know, whether it be the founders or democracy as envisioned, I would say, you know, now is the time to retire. Enjoy your twilight years. I certainly know I wouldn't want to be spending, you know, the, the later years of my life hassling and arguing and fighting in Congress, although power is a is a heck of a drug. But she can't. And I think that is important because it's taken choice away. It has removed the possibility of agency because if Democrats want their agenda to progress, she has to stay in office. And that's just, that's not the way that democracy should work. Leah wright Rigueur and Joseph Bustos, thanks so much, both of you, for joining me on Politics Weekly America. Thank you. Thank you. And that is all from us for this week. Do make sure to listen back to Thursday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, as Noshin Iqbal looks at the death of Jordan Neely, a homeless Michael Jackson impersonator who died when a fellow passenger on the New York subway put him in a chokehold. With her guest, Noshin examines what the killing and subsequent protests reveal about the city, the state of a crumbling US mental health system, and how just about anything can become a politically divisive issue in today's America. So make sure to search for that wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.